Oral questions by members? Member for Surrey White Rock. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. For years, this NDP government has tried to avoid taking any responsibility for the future of policing in Surrey. Last month, instead of providing leadership, they simply kicked the can down the road. Their inaction has resulted in continued uncertainty and now skyrocketing costs for the citizens of Surrey. Surrey residents are now facing the biggest tax increase, nearly 20%, the largest tax increase in the history of that city. My question is a simple one to the Premier. When will he finally make a decision on the future of policing in Surrey? Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I uh, thank the member uh, for his question. Uh, as the member is well aware, the City of Surrey uh, made a decision some four years ago that they wanted to move from the RCMP model of policing to having their own police service. That is their right to do that. That transition was underway. Um, at the last election, the, uh, a new uh, mayor and council were elected. Uh, they, in a five to four vote, said they wanted to return back to the RCMP uh, from the Surrey Police Service. Uh, as the member will know, the transition to where we are today has taken the better part of that four-year time. Um, it meant working with the federal government, it meant working with the RCMP and the city of Surrey to ensure that there was an orderly transition in place. That transition was about halfway through. The city of Surrey now wants to transition back. Uh, they have the ability to, to do that. They, have made that. they have made that decision that that's what they want to do. But in order to do that, they have to be able to provide a plan of a transition plan that ensures that there is safe, effective, and adequate policing. That's the responsibility of, of the Solicitor General, the Director of Police Services. Subsequent to that, the City of Surrey worked on a plan on how they saw it, uh, they saw it going. The RCMP also provided how that they showed how that they would restaff uh, in terms of the, the going back to uh, the, the RCMP model. Um, we received that information uh, just before Christmas. My staff have been working hard and analyzing that. They identified a range of gaps uh, in both plans that needed to be addressed. We have just received the responses to the questions and the concerns we had from the City of Surrey uh, on Thursday. We have received the RCMP's uh, plan in terms of how they plan to restaff. That work is being analyzed uh, as quickly as possible. The bottom line is this, member, that any plan has to ensure safe and effective and adequate policing. If it doesn't do that, it cannot be, it cannot be approved. That work is underway. I want it done as quickly as possible. I was asked on the weekend whether it's going to take months or weeks. I said I expect it in weeks. We are, the, my staff are doing everything they can, working with the City of Surrey, working with the RCMP and the Surrey Police Service to get the answers to the questions that they need so that we are able to make a decision that puts public safety first in the City of Surrey. Member for Surrey White Rock Supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And, and the Minister talks about his responsibility, so let's, let's talk about the Minister's responsibility. In August of 2019, the Guest Government gave a green light to the Surrey Police Transition. The Minister just spoke about that. At that time, the project was approved, 
with little transparency, numerous unanswered questions, and an uncertainty about true costs. Now yesterday, and the minister will be aware of this, Mayor Brenda Locke said, and I quote, there is a poison pill inside of that contract that says there is an 18-month severance clause after as little as six months of work. Let me repeat that. An 18-month severance clause after as little as six months of work. This minister must have known about that. This government, this premier, signed off on it. And now Surrey residents are stuck with it. Will the Premier stand up today and tell the people of Surrey why this government, this minister, this Premier signed off on a clause, on a contract that had an 18-month severance clause? Minister. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. I thank the member for the question. The member will know that the contracts are negotiated between the, the police board uh, and, uh, and the city of Surrey uh, and their police department. Policing is a local government responsibility, Honourable Member. Policing is a local government responsibility. Members. Members. Minister will continue. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. And, and the, the key in this whole thing, and I notice um, that uh, when this whole issue uh, came about, uh, the opposition's view is very clear. This is a local government responsibility. This is a local government decision, and it is. Our decision as Solicitor General, my decision as Solicitor General is to ensure that if Surrey wants to do a transition, any transition, whether it's going um, forward or backward, ensures that there is safe and effective policing in place. The plans for that were signed off by both the federal government, the province, and the city of Surrey in order to move forward to the Surrey Police Service. That transition has been well underway. And I'll remind the member of what his own leader said around the Surrey transition, which was that he will work hard to ensure that there's a smooth and successful transition for Surrey's own police force. And that's what the leader of the opposition said. And I'll repeat for the member, my responsibility is to ensure that if Surrey goes back, that there's a safe and effective plan. The city of Surrey has said and acknowledged that those... Members... Do some homework, honourable member. I don't sign off on the Both sides. Thank you, honourable speaker. As I was saying, the, the transition, my responsibility is to ensure that there is a safe and effective transition that ensures safe and effective policing for the city of Surrey. That work is underway. I want that work to be done as quickly as possible. The city of Surrey wants it to be done as quickly as possible, and I know the residents of Surrey want it to be done as quickly as possible. The city of Surrey has acknowledged that those costs are their costs, Honourable Speaker. So, Honourable Member, that work is underway, but I want to make it clear. A transition has to ensure safe and effective policing. And as a former Solicitor General, you should know that that is the key priority. That is the key priority, member. You may not think that, you certainly do. Member for Prince George Wilmont. Well, thank you very much. And I can assure the member opposite that the debate in this chamber today is, is not about public safety. 
That we agree with. We agree that that has to be a priority. What we are arguing about is the fact that this minister studiously avoided answering the question. And he feels very free to point fingers at everybody else for the mess that's taking place in Surrey. Let's be clear. This is a total mess. And the people that are going to have to pay for this government's incompetence and delays are the people of Surrey a nearly 20% increase in their taxes, and that would be a record tax hike in the city of Surrey. Every single day that this minister delays makes the decision on future policing in Surrey, it only serves to increase anxiety about the costs to Surrey residents. And let's talk about those costs. Those would be on top of sky-high inflation that leads to the country again today. They have the highest gas prices, the highest gas tax prices in North America, and the highest housing prices in North America. Many British Columbians are at the breaking point. So will the minister get up and give us a specific timeline, especially to provide relief for the people of Surrey? Will he fix the mess? Solicitor General. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Uh, well, I'll disagree with the, uh, the member. This is about public safety, Honourable Speaker. This is very much about public safety. If it, was just about, if it was just about saying, yes, your plan is fine, go ahead and do what you want, uh, Honourable Speaker, uh, but it's not. This is, about, this is about ensuring a safe transition, both forwards and backwards, Honourable Speaker. The transition forward was proceeding. The council made a decision that they want to go back. In order to do that, they have to put in place a proper plan that ensures safe and effective policing. Honourable Speaker, they submitted an initial proposal. It was lacking. We have been working with the City of Surrey and the RCMP on the gaps that were identified to ensure that we have the answers in place that will satisfy the statutory responsibility that I have, that government has, to ensure safe and effective policing, that a transition takes place that people understand and ensure safe and effective policing, not only for the City of Surrey, Honourable Member, but also for the rest of the province. Because I'll tell the, the, the Honourable Speaker, I'll tell that member this, that if a plan came forward that said we're going to restaff Surrey by taking members from Prince George or taking members from Coquitlam or taking members from the North Shore, that would not pass muster on this side of the House and I expect on that side of the House. We have to do the work that needs to be done and make sure it's done properly. Member for Prince George, we supplemental. Well, let's be clear, the minister can't have it both ways. He talks about scrutinizing a plan that apparently he did know that there was an 18-month severance clause in that contract. Can't have it both ways. The minister can't do that. In fact, let's be clear, this mess landed on his desk. He said clearly that the government approved the transition which means he was aware that there was an 18-month severance clause in that transition plan after potentially as little as six months' work. And that is what's driving the unbelievable costs that Surrey residents may face. So the minister can't have it both ways. So would he like to stand up today and answer the specific question, was he aware of the fact there was an 18-month severance clause in the case of the transition in Surrey policing? 
Solicitor General. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Um, the contract is the one that's negotiated at that level, Honourable Speaker. I don't sign off on the contract. Honourable Speaker, Honourable Speaker, Honourable Speaker, the City of Surrey voted to move from the RCMP force, Honourable Speaker, to a municipal police force of the Surrey Police Service. They subsequently, after uh, almost three years of a transition, decided to move back to the RCMP. In order to do that, members, in, in order to do that, Honourable Speaker, there has to be a plan that ensures safe and effective policing. Within the, um, the, 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 the contracts uh, that uh, the Surrey Police Department put in place, uh, the, Surrey, the City of Surrey agreed to, there will be terms of employment, Honourable Speaker, just as there are for every other police department in, the, uh, in this province and indeed across the country. We have seen the RCMP have negotiated a contract that's resulted in a 25% salary increase, Honourable Speaker. There's added significant cost to policing right across this province. The members, members. The bottom line is this, Honourable Speaker. I am responsible for ensuring a safe transition for policing. Whether they want to go forward or whether they want to go back, that work is underway. That's what's being done. The House Leader of the Third Party. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Island Coastal Economic Trust was capitalized with uh, $15 million in 2006 by the former uh, BC Liberal government. This uh, BC NDP government brought in, uh, bought themselves some time by adding $10 million to that in 2017. We've seen uh, the $56 million uh, assist uh, in uh, the member communities on Vancouver Island and the Sunshine Coast, attracting upwards of about $250 million uh, into new investment into the region. Rural communities on uh, Vancouver Island and on the coast have been waiting months uh, to hear whether this uh, vital uh, economic driver for the region will be a priority for this government. Mr. Speaker, my question is through you to the Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. I and I imagine my BC NDP colleagues will be interested to know, uh, will the Minister capitalize the, uh, recapitalize the Island Coastal Economic Trust in Budget 2023? Minister of Jobs and Economic Development. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you to the member for the question. The Island Coastal Economic Trust has played a very important role in stimulating economic development throughout Vancouver Island and the Sunshine Coast since 2006. And building resilient communities is a key action of our stronger BC economic plan which helps move BC forward by tackling the challenges of today while growing an economy that works for everyone. In 2018, our government provided an additional $10 million in recapitalization of the trust to ensure it continue to support communities. We've also provided ICE-T with almost $3.3 million in funding through two rural rounds of community recovery initiative funding, Mr. Speaker. This funding has supported the trust to hire business advisors to help diversify local economies through the pandemic and help mitigate changes in the forestry sector, Mr. Speaker. Communities in Ice Tees region are also able to apply for funding through our new $33 million Reddit program to again drive economic diversification, Mr. Speaker. 
The first intake just closed and we're very excited about the quality of the applications that have come in. We've got more work to do, Mr. Speaker, but the focus on local communities continues and it's incredibly important to us. House Leader, third party supplemental. Yeah, Mr. Speaker, um, I think the communities uh, on Vancouver Island and in uh, the coastal region deserve uh, better than just uh, the, the minister uh, replying with the same information that I provided in the preamble to my question. <laughs> there's there's 500,000 people in this region, Mr. Speaker, who depend on this trust to be able to fund important projects in their communities. Our local government colleagues rely on this, these funds to be able to fund uh, local projects. Um, resilient communities, as the Minister uh, framed, require reliability in the government funding. They need to know how they're going to be able to plan. Unfortunately, according to the Act, Ice-T is about uh, to have to shutter their doors because uh, because their funding is coming to an end. We've received uh, letters from community leaders outlining how these investments have supported initiatives to develop community identity, Indigenous-led and nature-based tourism, entrepreneurialism, sustainable uh, innovation. 28 communities, including Courtney, Nanaimo, the Shishala Nation, Numgees First Nation, Campbell River, uh, North Cowichan, Port Alberni, Powell River, Salt Spring Chamber of Commerce, the Rural Island Economic Partnership, just among 28 communities who have written this government. And I look to my colleagues uh, on the other side uh, who represent these communities and wonder out loud how it is that we even got to this sort of uh, brinksmanship situation. Through you, Mr. Speaker, to the Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. Will she be reinvesting in these communities or will she be telling them that they're on their own? Minister. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker, and thank you to the member opposite for the question. I myself am an island girl. These communities matter deeply to me, and they matter deeply to our government, Mr. Speaker. There are many... There are many examples I can share of the investments we're making in this, um, in, on the island, Mr. Speaker. Uh, in this community and others. For example, an investment in 2020-2021 in the goods movement strategy, Mr. Speaker, tens of millions of dollars invested in the Port of Nanaimo expansion at Duke Point, Mr. Speaker. We have received Ice-T's proposal, Mr. Speaker, and we're considering it. Since its inception, Ice-T has operated on a spend-down model, and we understand the timeline that the Board is working with. We're, considering, we're continuing to have discussions with the new CEO to explore funding options for Ice-T, Mr. Speaker, and we'll have more to announce in future days. Member for Skeena. Mr. Speaker, Heisla Cedar LNG is one of the largest First Nations-led infrastructure projects in Canadian history, with the potential to create thousands of jobs and reduce global emissions by replacing coal-fired power in Asia. But under this Premier, the project has been trapped in political purgatory since last November. The Premier is afraid to even talk about it. He's ashamed of our natural resources and LNG. And he has no clear explanation or timeline for a decision on the Heiser Cedar project. So a simple question for the Premier. 
When will a decision be made so Heisel Cedar LNG can start exporting clean and ethical LNG to the world? Minister of Environment. Thank you very much, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the member for the question. I'll keep my answer uh, short. Uh, the issue, the project, is complicated. It has a number of features. My colleague, the Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation, and I are the decision makers. The material is before us for a decision. We are uh, looking at it thoroughly. We are working toward a decision, and that is all I can say. Member Farskina. Uh, Mr. Speaker, that answer doesn't make any sense. LNG Canada was complicated. Phase two was complicated. And when I was Chief Counsel of Heise Nation, we actually put together Heise Cedar LNG as an accommodation of rights and title. I mean, it's clear that the NDP are still ashamed of our natural resource economy, including LNG. We hear it in our debates every day in this legislature. First Nations are doing their part to seize opportunities and lift their people from poverty. But there is growing frustration over the Premier's delays in political purgatory. Chief Counselor Crystal Smith from the Heiser Nation said last month, and I quote, in regard to the approval of the environmental assessment, it has definitely been frustrating to say the least, end quote. By law, the deadline for this government to decide on Cedar LNG is 45 days, but it's been over 100 days with no clear explanation or timeline. There was less timeline for LNG Canada. When will the Premier stop delaying and actually support one of the largest First Nations-led infrastructure projects in Canadian history? Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. Uh, on this side of the House, we take reconciliation, including economic reconciliation, with First Nations very seriously. And I would just simply add that uh, the Premier isn't delaying or ducking a decision because it's not his to make. It belongs to me and to my colleague, the Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. We take economic reconciliation seriously, as I said. We're taking the proposal seriously in all of its aspects, in all of its impacts, and we are working toward a decision very soon. Member for Vancouver, Langara. Mr. Speaker, this government, under this Premier, needs to act on economic reconciliation with First Nations. It's a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. This Premier knows that, and he's failing on this file. He's failing these First Nations. The Minister's answer about Cedar LNG is just another example about how this government is failing on economic reconciliation with First Nations. First Nations Indigenous peoples want to be full partners in the economic development of BC, including on clean and ethical LNG projects like Cedar LNG. The Muslim Indian Band has partnered with Fortis on a project to unlock LNG as a marine fuel through the Tilbury LNG project in Delta. But just like Cedar LNG, 
The project has been caught in an NDP political purgatory. Despite a legislative deadline of 45 days for a decision on the Tilbury Marine Jetty, this government has remained silent, and this Premier sits there and lets that minister stand up and answer the questions. This has been a delay for over 130 days. When will the Premier provide answers and make a decision that respects the rights of First Nations to pursue economic opportunity? Minister of Environment. Thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. And uh, once again, uh, the member opposite raises uh, an issue of a decision under the Environmental Assessment Act. Uh, as a lawyer, the member should know that uh, I or any of my colleagues are very limited in what we can say in response to a decision that is currently before us. But what I will say is we take economic reconciliation very seriously. We take uh, the rights of Indigenous peoples very seriously. That's why when we rewrote the Environmental Assessment Act in 2018, we put in a provision that stated if there were nations with legitimate interests who did not give consent to a project or raised concerns, that we would meet and hear from those nations. Despite the fact that Tilbury Marine Jetty is a project under the old Act, because that is our commitment in the new Act, because it is our commitment in the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act that this government brought in, that every member of this House voted for unanimously. We, my colleague, uh, the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure and I, the decision makers on this project, are respecting every Indigenous nation who wants to be heard and wants to ensure that we take their points of view and their concerns seriously and into account for the decision. Member for Vancouver Langara, supplemental. Mr. Speaker, nations in our province are asking for respect. And quite frankly, Mr. Speaker, that answer shows a real lack of respect for the Heisla Nation and for the Musqueam Indian Band. They are looking for the partnership to move forward with major economic development projects like Cedar LNG and Tilbury LNG. The delays and lack of support only further demonstrates, Mr. Speaker, this government's failure to move forward with economic reconciliation. Yes, I am a lawyer. I have been. But this project and these decisions have been delayed beyond the legislative timeframes of 45 days, 100 days and counting for Cedar LNG, 130 days and counting for Tilbury LNG project, it seems that this Premier is choosing his extremist base, including members of his own cabinet, over Indigenous reconciliation and economic opportunity. For instance, his Attorney General, who was a senior campaigner for the US-based Stand Earth. She wrote a fundraising email opposing Tilbury LNG and said, quote, this is just the beginning of our fight to expose LNG for what it truly is, another climate catastrophe, end quote. Why has this Premier chosen to side with extremists that stand out earth over the Heisla Nation and the Musqueam Indian Band? Minister of Environment. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. And uh, 
You know, it is just regrettable that the member opposite is uh, choosing to label anyone who disagrees uh, with his position as an extremist. That is not how we have dialogue in this province. I'm, uh, I'm familiar with my record, I'm familiar with my colleagues' records, and I'm proud of all of them. My colleagues and I, my colleagues and I, Honourable Speaker, are proceeding in a respectful, thorough manner to make the decisions that are before us. In making those decisions, we consider environmental impacts, we consider our commitments, we consider economic reconciliation, and we consider the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. Among the nations with whom we met on Tilbury Marine Jetty were the Musqueam. Opposition House Leader. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Well, the, the words uh, uh, of the Minister are cold comfort to First Nations and indeed to uh, the thousands of hardworking British Columbians who contribute uh, so much to the provincial economy and put food on the table for their families through the hard work that they do in BC's natural resources sectors. It's time for this government to start respecting those families. And I would suggest that that doesn't come through, uh, through comments like uh, attributable to the Attorney General uh, that uh, were just read into the record. They don't come from uh, comments from the current Minister of, of uh, Emergency Management who said during the Premier's run for leadership uh, that the Premier would, quote, take an unamb un unambiguous stance against LNG, end quote. They don't come from comments uh, made during the throne speech from the Premier's own uh, appointed Parliamentary Secretary for Rural Development, who said that supporting our natural resource sector was, and I quote, uninspiring and a vision for what rural communities were 100 years ago. Mr. Speaker, later this week, on February 24th to be exact, it will have been one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine a war that has underscored the need of the Western world to stop relying on oil and gas sold by dictators like Vladimir Putin. In Germany, six new floating LNG regasification terminals are expected to come online by the end of this year, and growing demand for LNG is forcing countries like Japan and South Korea to turn to coal power plants as a future energy source. BC should be a leader in providing a secure source of clean and ethical LNG, reducing emissions in Asia by 50%. And Mr. Speaker, we have everything that it takes for this to be the case, except for the political will. The Premier seems to be more interested in pandering to ideological extremists, saying in his very first speech as Premier, and I quote, we cannot continue to expand fossil fuel infrastructure, end quote. So my, premier, my question to the Premier is this, why isn't the Premier seizing the opportunity to support our allies with safe transitional fuels like LNG, which also happen to promote reconciliation and reduce global emissions. When will this Premier stand up? When will he indicate that he's going to approve expeditiously Heisla Cedar LNG, Tilbury LNG, and Phase 2 of LNG Canada? Before the Chair recognizes the Premier, I want to remind all members not to use electronic devices during the question period, please. Premier. Thank you. Uh, I 
I thank the uh, members on the other side uh, for the questions. Uh, these are important projects uh, that have been brought forward by First Nations partners. And they're challenging questions for British Columbians, even if the opposition pretends they're not. Uh, British Columbians are seized with the issue of climate change. They see the smoky summers, the wildfire seasons that have destroyed a huge portion of our forest base, the floods uh, that we've seen through atmospheric rivers, the heat dome, and LNG is, let's be frank, it's a fossil fuel that contributes in part to global climate change. And so we have brought in a clean BC plan with clear targets for carbon emissions. Projects have to hit those targets. We've been clear about LNG targets, about that fossil fuel emissions generally have to hit our carbon pollution targets. Now, illustrating some of the complexity of this, one of the proudest moments I've had since being Premier was the agreement we signed with Blueberry River First Nations. The complexity that that nation faces of wanting to preserve the land base, also recognizing the economic opportunities that the biggest private sector investment in BC's history, LNG Canada, brings to them and other nations that our government delivered, by the way, is important. And that's why the agreement talks about reducing disturbance on the land by half, but making sure that we're meeting our international commitments including around carbon pollution. These are not simple black and white issues. These are complex issues. And so we'll work closely with nations on economic development. We'll work closely with fossil fuel producers around LNG to ensure we're hitting our carbon targets. But all of us in this house need to be focused as well on the fact that the world is transitioning rapidly away from fossil fuels. And to make sure that for our kids and for the future of our economy, BC is part of that through clean hydrogen, through our clean electricity, across the province. These are huge advantages we have, critical minerals, getting our permit times down. I accept the critique of the opposition. They struggled well in government to deal with this. We're going to take it on. Permit times is a huge issue for resource proponents that need to get those critical minerals. We're proud of our resource industries. You see our work on forestry at a time when so many forests burn down and the forests aren't available. So we're going to do that work. That's why we have one of the lowest unemployment rates in Canada. That's why we gained 63,000 jobs last year, the vast majority of which in the private sector. Three quarters of the job growth from women, thanks to our investments in childcare. Since 2017, led the country in small business job growth. We have the highest credit rating of all the provinces in Canada. Our economy came back faster than other provinces because we supported people and natural resources are part of that. We're going to continue to do the work to deliver for British Columbians. We're going to keep building the strongest economy in Canada, and BC will be a leader in the clean energy future of the world. The bell ends the caution period. Go.